Hello, everyone. I am John Allen, the editor and president, I don't know, every imperial title conceivable, of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. You can find us online at cruxnow.com. And I am also the host of this program, Last Week in the Church. Now, as you know, typically on this show, we have a kind of rich stew of stories to talk about diverse ingredients, hopefully adding up to a typically savory and filling taste. But this week is kind of a special edition of Last Week in the Church because we are going to focus exclusively on one story. And that one story is really the world's story right now. We are on day five of Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. We will begin by looking at the budding controversy over the Pope's alleged silence on Putin. Then we will explore the religious subtext to this conflict, which is extremely important and often overlooked in the analysis. We will examine the struggle for the soul of global orthodoxy that's at stake in this war. We will also look at its implications for Orthodox Catholic relations, not just in Ukraine, but around the world. We'll talk about the possibility of the Vatican acting as a mediator, conflict resolution force behind the scenes, and whether that seems realistic. And then finally, we're going to wrap up this week with some reflections on priests. That's what's waiting for you on the other side, so please stick around. Happy Tuesday to you, everybody. Of course, the, today is the first day of March, and it is also, as I mentioned at the top, day five of the war in Ukraine. You know, it's funny, last week on this show, we were talking about the latest kind of borderline ridiculous developments in this Vatican trial on financial crime. We were looking at a papal shakeup of the Congregation for the Faith and some moves in the direction of decentralization. All of that, of course, seemed terribly important at the time. And then last Thursday rolled around when Russian forces began pouring across the border with Ukraine in a kind of all-out assault that is continuing to unfold. We record this show on Monday. As I'm doing so, Ukrainian and Russian officials are meeting in a Ukrainian location near the border with Belarus to try to launch some sort of dialogue. We'll see what that brings. President Vladimir Zelensky, who has one of the world's most active Twitter accounts right now, has already expressed his skepticism that this is going to amount to very much, but we will see. And as ever, when there is a massive global crisis, especially one, as in this case, with an obvious religious dimension to it, there is an expectation that the Pope and the Vatican are going to react. Those of us who cover the Vatican immediately begin keeping our eyes peeled for any kind of Vatican statement. We want to see what the Pope is going to do. Because the Vatican also has its own diplomatic corps, we're always interested in the question of whether there could be some behind-the-scenes role the Vatican could play to try to put out the fires. And as ever, in this case, therefore, we have been keenly attentive to what Pope Francis has said and what Pope Francis hasn't said. To date, 
Pope Francis has addressed this crisis multiple times from a Vatican statement on Thursday in the name of the Secretary of State all the way through to his Angelus, noontime Angelus address yesterday, where he condemned what he called the diabol diabolical logic of the use of weapons to try to achieve one's aims. And so it is hardly as if Pope Francis has been silent. However, there is a notable omission in the papal and Vatican rhetoric, which is, while Pope Francis and his Vatican team have repeatedly condemned the war, they've never mentioned the party that started the war. <laughs> that is, they've never mentioned the name Vladimir Putin, they've not condemned Russia, they've not named Russia as the aggressor in this conflict, and all of that is driving some people to distraction. A friend and colleague of ours wrote a, a, a tremendous column yesterday. Uh, it's Bob Mickens on, uh, at Lacroix, who I've known for a long time. And basically, Bob was fulminating about the fact that the Pope and the Vatican appear to be placating the Russians in this situation, and basically said, how much longer is this going to go on, and how many Ukrainian lives are they prepared to sacrifice on the altar of whatever it is they're trying to achieve? And that's a question that I think many people are asking these days. So let's try to understand where this silence or this discretion or this reticence is coming from. First of all, I'd like to remind you that it was about five minutes ago that we were all upset about the Pope's silence on China. Do you remember that? You know, a, an American Secretary of State even published an article in First Things, Mike Pompeo under Trump, suggesting that the Pope and the Vatican were hemorrhaging their moral authority because they wouldn't be more forthright in condemning religious freedom abuses and condemning the persecution of the Uyghurs in China. There was a drumbeat around, and meanwhile, they were making deals with China, of course. And there's been a drumbeat around that for a long time. Going back further in time, remember the criticism of Pope Paul VI during the Cold War? and his policy of Ostpolitik and therefore not being confrontational with the Soviets. Before that, do you remember the whole thing about the alleged silence of Pope Pius XII on the Nazis? You know, Hitler's Pope and, and those kinds of accusations. My point is that this is how popes rule, okay? In conflict situations, the Vatican's aspiration always is to keep open the possibility of acting behind the scenes in order to promote some positive outcome. And the price of that, as they see it, is always not engaging in public rhetorical spats with the parties to the conflict. The, the effort of the Pope always is to be a, a super partis, a, a above the parties. Now, you, know, you can make of that what you will, you can condemn it as fecklessness and cowardice. You can see it as admirable restraint in, in the Vatican maximizing its opportunities to promote humanitarian values around the world. Whatever construction you want to put on it, this, is, this did not begin with Pope Francis and it will not end with Pope Francis. This is a fairly consistent papal approach to every conflict situation. I would add that there is also a special motive here because 
every pope since John the 23rd has been interested in trying to promote detente with the Orthodox world. And in the Orthodox world, the Russians account for somewhere between a third and a half of the world's global Orthodox population. And therefore, there has been this longstanding Vatican policy of not doing or saying anything that would offend Russian Orthodox sensibilities in order to try to continue the ecumenical journey. Again, this did not start with Pope Francis. It was very much the policy under St. John Paul II, for instance. St. John Paul was a ferocious anti-communist and helped bring down the Soviet Union, but he displayed a policy of extraordinary deference to Russian Orthodox sensibilities. And so my point is that you can draw whatever conclusion you want, but just don't blame this personally on Pope Francis, because this is one instance in which rather than being a maverick, he's actually kind of playing by the standard papal playbook. And by the way, it's not as if he's done nothing. I mean, on Friday, Pope Francis left the Vatican and went down Rome's Via della Conciliazione and stormed into the Russian embassy to the Holy See for a half hour tete-a-tete with the Russian ambassador. Now, the Vatican said nothing about that. They, they didn't say word one, except that the Pope just wanted to express his concern for the war. But look, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you this. Popes don't hightail it out of the Vatican and go to a foreign embassy because they're in a good mood. Okay? It's not because they're happy about something. I mean, this is virtually unprecedented. Popes summon ambassadors. They don't go to them. So, you know, I think Pope Francis is doing what he can within the conventions and limits of the Vatican's standard operating procedure. All right, we shift now to the religious subtext to this conflict, which is not only mammothly important, but I think has been largely overlooked. If you watch American TV, you would think this is entirely a geopolitical, military, strategic thing. And all of those dimensions are, of course, very important. They're foundational. But you would also miss the point if you don't understand that Vladimir Putin regards himself as the great defender of the faith for orthodoxy worldwide, has a very tight partnership with the Russian Orthodox Church, and is attempting to project the Russian brand of orthodoxy, which is fiercely anti-Western, anti-secular, quite traditional around the world. And this is occurring at a moment in which there is an ongoing struggle for the soul of orthodoxy between the brand of orthodoxy represented by Patriarch Kirill and the Patriarchate of Moscow and the brand represented by Patriarch Bartholomew I of Constantinople, which was much more open, dialogic, pro-Western, pro-engagement, internationalist. Bartholomew is traditionally, by Orthodox tradition, the first among equals. That's the privilege that Constantinople has always enjoyed in, Constant in Orthodoxy. However, Moscow has most of the people and most of the money. And so in that contest, this offensive in Ukraine, where there, is, there are three different versions of the Orthodox Church, two of which are to varying extents resistant to Moscow. 
more pro-Western, more pro-ecumenical than Moscow is. This is an effort not merely to subjugate Ukraine politically, it is also an effort to subjugate it ecclesiastically. Now, the question is, what's the long-term consequence of this going to be? Because given the way global opinion has fallen in line almost uniformly against this Russian aggression, it is entirely possible that within orthodoxy, this could generate greater sympathy for Bartholomew and a greater willingness of other orthodox leaders to align themselves with him rather than Moscow. And if so, inadvertently, under the law of unintended consequences, this could produce a major realignment in global orthodoxy. We shall see. Now, there's also an, a Catholic orthodox dimension to all of this, because Ukraine is also home to the Greek Catholic Church. It's the largest of the 23 Eastern churches in union with Rome. It is, by tradition, very pro-Western, modern, in favor of an independent Ukraine that stands on its own two legs and resists subjugation from Moscow. Which means, of course, that as Russian troops progressively pour into Ukraine, and if they decide they're going to have to engage in some kind of short-term occupation, it is entirely possible that many of those Greek Catholics are going to be on Russian hit lists. Now, one of the interesting dimensions of all of this is that the intellectual project of the Greek Catholic Church in Ukraine for decades, centuries really, has been the idea of a kind of reconciled Christianity in Ukraine in which Catholics and Orthodox come together under the aegis of an independent Christian community in Ukraine that is not controlled by Moscow, that is open to the rest of the world, and that is engaged ecumenically. Even the Moscow Patriarchate Church in Ukraine at the beginning of this conflict was putting out statements condemning the Russian invasion. It is again possible that this is going to produce a degree of, a new degree of solidarity between the Orthodox, all the Orthodox in Ukraine and Catholics that will move us closer to that long-cherished dream of the Greek Catholic intelligentsia, which would have important consequences for Catholic Orthodox relations around the world. Again, it is way too early to tell, but war always scrambles some eggs, and it will be fascinating to, to watch how that develops. Now, amid the ongoing conflict, it has also been suggested that the Vatican might be able to play some kind of mediating role. Now, the, the main roadblock to that, of course, is the Russians have not shown any particular interest in such a development, but we should note that President Zelensky of Ukraine has repeatedly said he would be open to it. He's even said that he thinks the Vatican would be a great place to sign a peace treaty ending this conflict. The Ukraine's ambassador to the Holy See has repeatedly indicated a desire to see that happen. And just today, which again is Monday when we're taping, the Vatican Secretary of State, Italian Cardinal Pietro Padalin, has indicated that the Vatican would be open to playing some kind of mediating role, saying he, is always, he always believes in dialogue, which is basically the motto of the Vatican diplomatic corps. Now, 
Whether this will actually happen, of course, remains to be seen. It is true that Pope Francis and Putin, up to this point, have seemed to have a pretty good relationship. They were on the same page early on in Francis's papacy at a G summit, G7 summit in St. Petersburg, where Western powers wanted to go to war in Syria, and neither Francis nor Putin wanted that to happen. Every time they've met, the atmosphere has seemingly been warm. So perhaps there is a scenario here in which if the Russian offensive in Ukraine bogs down and Putin needs some kind of face-saving exit strategy, putting himself in the hands of spiritual leaders, and, and I think this would be especially plausible if Pope Francis were to do this perhaps in tandem with Patriarch Kirill of Moscow, and with the religious leadership of Ukraine, perhaps something like that would be possible. You know, it's just possible that Putin might see that as an attractive alternative to humiliation. You know, again, we will see how it plays out. But I would just note, for everyone who is upset about the Pope's silence, that if it does play out, that Russia were to sign off on Vatican mediation, and if that were, in fact, to help to end the conflict, then maybe you would say that silence was a price, price worth paying. And the, and the thing is, this is one of those purchases where you never know in advance the product you're actually going to get. You know the one you want, dialogue, mediation, and peace. But you got to pay the price up front, not knowing if you're ever going to get it. That's just the name of the game. All right, finally, before we close this week, Reflections on priests. Amid the ongoing coverage, the, the saturation coverage of the Ukrainian conflict, I happen, uh, Major Archbishop Shevchuk, who is the head of the Greek Catholic Church, has been putting out almost daily messages, updates on the situation. And that always includes his phone call that day with Pope Francis. The, the two men have been in basically daily conflict, or contact. But over the weekend, one of the things Shevchuk said, was that the priests of the Greek Catholic Church were going to be going into the subways and the sewers and the bomb shelters, all of those people underground, where all those places underground where people are hiding now from Russian bombs, to celebrate Mass on Sunday. Because he said, you know, in this situation, above all, people need the consolation of the Eucharist, and our priests are going to go where they are to bring it to them. I just thought what an incredible, incredibly noble gesture that was. And it got me thinking about priests in general. And in part, this is because my wife, Elise, and I had three priest friends of ours over for lunch on Sunday. Now, the, in one case, it's a guy I've known for more than 20 years. In other cases, these are guys I've known a few years. But they are all just great guys and they're incredibly important in our lives. And generally, they don't go around calling attention to themselves or, you know, advertising what they do. Well, in fact, one of these guys is so paranoid about publicity that you've got to use a crowbar to get anything out of him about what he's been up to lately. But anyway, the point is, it just got me thinking about how in so many quiet ways, 
priests are unsung heroes of our times. And listen, I, I know we live in a time in which praising Catholic priests for any reason to some people is going to feel like denial about the sex abuse scandals. Other people are going to think it just feeds clericalism, which is the bet in war of the Francis papacy. And I get all that. I mean, sex abuse scandals are real. Clericalism is real. However, you know, my experience, I bet your experience, the, the experience of so many people around the world, is that the vast majority of priests we know are flawed, but good, decent, holy guys who are trying by their lights to help. Sometimes they succeed, sometimes they fail, but they keep trying. And there's just something incredibly heartwarming about that, that, I don't know, I, I just wish, I feel like it has become sort of taboo to say that kind of thing out loud. And I guess I just want to say thank you. By the way, speaking of priests, quick update. Last week, I talked about the Cooks with Collars competition in the Diocese of Allentown, Pennsylvania, uh, which I described as one of the more creative fundraising efforts in the Catholic Church I've ever heard of. Basically, about 30 priests did videos of them cooking their favorite dishes, and then people vote for which one they like. And by vote, I mean they give money to support parishes, to support Catholic charities. Quick update, we're, we're in the final stretch. The winner of the contest is going to be announced tomorrow, fittingly, on Fat Tuesday. The three finalists are Pennsylvania soft pretzels, Italian sausage, made predictably by the Knights of Columbus, and Portuguese striped sea bass. And apparently that sea bass is the odds-on favorite because it has already generated enough votes that this guy's parish was able to replace its boiler. So we will see. I will be on pins and needles awaiting the final result. And maybe next year they will allow a special guest chef to enter their competition. I'd, I'd love to roll out my Amatrachana against whatever these guys got. So memo to the Diocese of Allentown. If you've got the cojones, bring me into the competition next year and we will see what's what. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you for spending part of your Tuesday with us. As ever, you can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. That is www.cruxnow.com. While you're there, you will find a nice and easy box on the homepage, a way to make a financial contribution to Crux. If you're able to do that, we would deeply appreciate it. Our independence is our most precious asset, but it is not free. We need your help to pay for it. And we live in an era in which costs are going up. You know, the things are always tight. And so if you could give us a hand, it would be extraordinarily appreciated, and it would make a real difference in Crux's ability to keep bringing you the best in Catholic journalism, including, of course, this show. I mean, come on. If we weren't able to do this every week, you would, you would miss it, admit it. So if you can, we would be very grateful. We will see you next Tuesday at this time. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week. Don't forget to pray for peace in Ukraine. Talk to you again soon.